passage of Scripture this morning was written by a person who was going through terrible difficulty and distress. And more than that, it was also written for people going through distress. And so it too is a wonderful text to keep near when things are hard. So please turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 102. If you didn't bring a Bible, you can get one of the black ones in the bottom of the chair in front of you. That'll be on page 501, and then continuing on in page 502. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, please take that Bible. Uh, We would like nothing more than for you to have uh, the Bible at any time available to you as as a comfort and as a source of joy. As we read this text together, I want you to notice the radical difference that we'll read between the first half of the psalm and the second half of the psalm. I think it'll be easy to spot the first half of the psalm, verses 1 through 11. The author is crying out to the Lord in distress and anguish. But in the second half of the psalm, verses 12 to 28, there's going to be a pretty drastic change in focus. The picture of distress and sorrow and grief that we see in this psalm is a really deep picture of sorrow. And it has a lot of pictures that many of us can relate to and understand, feeling miserable, alone, or helpless. But the second half of the psalm is a vastly different picture. It's about the Lord himself and the Lord's response to people who find themselves in distress. And ultimately, it's this focus on the Lord that the psalmist uses in his own life and heart as the foundation for his comfort in the middle of distress and which we likewise can use as the foundation for our comfort and confidence when we go through times of trial. So let's read uh, Psalm 102, page 501. It reads, A prayer of one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call, for my days pass away like smoke, and my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and has withered. I forget to eat my bread. Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I am like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I am like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. All the day, my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. For 
where I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink. Because of your indignation and anger, for you have taken me up and thrown me down. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. You will arise and have pity on Zion. It is the time to favor her. The appointed time has come. For your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. Nations will fear the name of the Lord, and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. For the Lord builds up Zion. He appears in his glory. He regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. Let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord that he looked down from his holy height. From heaven the Lord looked at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who were doomed to die, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord and in Jerusalem His praise when peoples gather together and kingdoms to worship the Lord. He has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. O my God, I say, Take me not away in the midst of my day, you whose years endure throughout all generations. Of old, you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, you will change them like a robe and they will pass away. But you are the same and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. This is the word of the Lord. What a good word it is. Let's go to the Lord in prayer that He might bless our time together this morning as we consider His word to us. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we want to come before You this morning to ask that you open not only our minds to understand what you've written for our benefit, but please, Lord, open our hearts as well, that we might receive your word by faith, that it might change and soften our hearts toward you, and that we might apply it 
to our lives so that our lives might honor and glorify you in the way that we know that you deserve. We know that we are utterly dependent upon you to come and do this work in us. We cannot open our minds. We cannot soften our hearts. Only you, by your Holy Spirit, can do this. And so we pray that you would come now and do this for us. We ask it so that we might be built up in Jesus Christ, your Son. And we pray that you would do it for the sake of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. For we ask it of you in his name and by his mighty blood. Amen. Amen. So the first question I want to ask you this morning is, how do you respond to difficult situations? I know how I respond to difficult situations. I've had a long time to think about it. Do you get angry? Angry at the situation, angry at somebody in the situation, angry just at nothing at all? Or do you get sad when something is difficult? Do you begin to feel self-pity? Some of us probably respond in fear. Or maybe we respond in envy because we see people around us who don't seem to be going through the same sorts of difficulties that we feel ourselves going through. Well, the author of this psalm has a different response. And it's one that we should consider for ourselves. His response at the very beginning of this psalm is to turn to the Lord in prayer in his distress. In fact, he even calls it a prayer in the psalm's title. It reads, A prayer of one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. He wants to take his affliction and bring it to the Lord and tell the Lord how he's feeling. Before you get angry or sad or self-pitying or fearful or envious, The Lord wants you to bring your cares before Him like this writer is doing. He spends the first half of this psalm, those first 11 verses, just pouring out His complaint before the Lord. 11 verses. thats To me, that feels like a lot. He doesn't skimp. And I think there's a lot we can learn about his distress and what it was like from these 11 verses. There are a few distinct elements that we're going to see as we take a look at these 11 verses that will emerge. And the first is that he feels alone. He feels hidden from the Lord. And he feels unheard. In the first two verses, he's crying out to the Lord, pleading with the Lord, saying, Hear me. He's begging the Lord, listen to me. He says, Let my cry come to you. Don't hide your face from me. He feels alone and separated. He feels distant from the Lord. Have you ever felt this way? Have you ever felt 
explicitly or implicitly that something was keeping you from the Lord when you're in your time of trouble? Maybe you felt like the Lord just didn't even notice what was going on. It's like your prayers that you prayed four days in a row, five days in a row, six months in a row, just were not heard. At least that's how it feels. And it feels miserable. So the officer's response is to cry out and say, Come, Lord, listen to my prayer. I don't want to be separated. I don't want to have this broken relationship with you. He says in verse 2, Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily. You can hear a tone of urgency and desperation in his words as he cries out to the Lord for connection. In addition to this idea of connection, we also see an idea of intensity to his distress. Specifically, he speaks in several verses as if he's going to die. You see it in that very same verse. Verse 2, when he asks the Lord, come to me speedily, the idea continues into verses 3 and 4. When he starts speaking about himself, like these things that are very short-lived. In verse 3, he says that his days pass away like smoke. That's short-lived. And in verse 4, he continues to compare himself to withered grass. In Texas, we know something about withered grass. It does not look good, and you know it's, it's only got another two days of this kind of heat before it's just going to be gone if it doesn't have any relief. And this is how the author feels. He feels like, I'm just not going to make it if you don't come to me. In both of these pictures, smoke in the air on the one hand and withered grass on the other, these pictures represent the frailty that this author feels about his life. Both of these things are on the edge of just not continuing to exist anymore. Just moments from being just gone. And he even strengthens this idea of wasting away in verse 4b when he says he's not even eating. He's so consumed by difficulty that he forgets to eat food. I imagine there are a bunch of us in this room who have been in similar circumstances where we were just so upset or anxious or distressed that we didn't want to think about food. We didn't care to. I've definitely felt this way before. It's a mix on the one hand of a kind of apathy or sometimes even a kind of disgust for the superficial good things we know aren't going to satisfy us ultimately. And on the other hand, a sort of singular focus on what's bothering us and what's consuming all of our attention. We're just so wrapped up in it. Have you had moments like this before where you're just so focused on your problem and so dissatisfied with any any superficial solution that might be able to help? 
Some of you, I imagine, have not felt this way before. If you're sitting there in your seat and this idea is foreign to you, praise the Lord. That's a wonderful thing. What a blessing. I'm genuinely glad that you've never been consumed with distress like that before. But for those who have been through this kind of situation, the experience that this author describes, like he's barely hanging on, like he knows his days are numbered and he just doesn't feel like he's going to make it, this is a very powerful description. But then at the at that point where he's describing this feeling of having a short-lived life, he puts his pause on that idea again, and he goes back to the first idea of feeling alone. Take a look at verse 6. Only now, instead of feeling separated from God, feeling that God isn't answering his prayer, now he feels like no one is around. He has no connection with anybody. So he's expanding this idea when he says, I am like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. It's a little odd to describe yourself like an owl. It's a solitary creature. And an owl in the desert, I got to assume, is really solitary. This picture is, again, of feeling utterly alone. Now, not just from the Lord, but he's just, he's in a place where it feels like no one is near. Completely cut off from relationships. And he repeats it again in the next verse, in verse 7, when he says, I am like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. He feels shut out of fellowship. We know what this feels like. We know what it's like when there seems like there's no one around to feel our difficulty with us. We don't have a brother or a parent or a friend to share that difficulty with us. And then he takes that idea and expands it yet again in verse 8, the next verse. Take a look. He says, All the day my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. Most of us probably have no idea what he really means by that. Uses my name for a curse. Just stop and think for a moment how isolating and isolated you would have felt if you are not only an object of scorn and rebuke from other people, but you have become the preferred method for scorning and rebuking people yet still. Imagine what it would feel like if it became commonplace for people to use your name as an insult to other people. If people started saying, you are so worthless, you're almost as worthless as Steve. I'm not sure who that insults more. I think Steve. Or if someone were to say, now, do not start acting like Jane, or no one's going to be your friend pretty soon. 
Jane becomes the standard by which we measure aloneness. That's how this author feels. He feels like he is not only derided, but he's the means by which people deride others. It's no wonder that he describes his constant sorrow by saying, I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink. In the next verse. Verse 9. Now these ashes, just so we're clear, these are the ashes of mourning that ancient Hebrews would place on their head as they wore sackcloth and ashes. He says, this mourning state is so constant, it's like it's my daily food. It's that regular. It's that, that much with me. And then in verse 10b, he says, you have taken me up and thrown me down. Do you feel the emphatic nature of his crying out to the Lord? Not you've cast me down. He says, you have picked me up and then you've thrown me down. He is pouring out his complaint before the Lord. And then he goes back to the second idea. Right? We had this first idea of feeling disconnected. Then he felt short-lived like smoke and withered grass. Then he goes back to feeling like he's disconnected from people. And now he goes again in verse 11 to feeling short-lived. He says, my days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. We all feel when we begin to suffer distress like God isn't for us. It's a, it's a very natural interpretation for a sinful heart to make. That he's against us. It's very easy to be tempted to think that way. I've been tempted to think that way. It's an easy way to look at your situation and say, God just doesn't care, or if he does care, he cares in the wrong way. But the author knows it's not true. And this is an important point. However much you have felt like that in your life, the author knows it's not true. And he's going to spend the next 17 verses speaking about it. At this point, he's going to radically change the way he's been talking about the way he thinks, the way he feels, and the way he's writing. He's going to begin to focus less on how he feels, and he's going to begin to focus more on the truth that he knows about God. And he writes this psalm in part for us as a prayer for one who's afflicted, For when we get afflicted in this way, he wants us to hear these same truths as well. So let's take a look. The second half of the psalm, beginning in verse 12. He wants us to place our feelings, the way that we feel, in subordination to the truth that he's about to share with us. We need to place our feelings in subordination to the truth. It's almost as if he's treating his fearful and sick heart with the medicine of truth about God and God's love for his people. 
and he's enabling us to do the same thing. But if he knows, verses 12 through 28, why does he spend 11 verses talking about his suffering? If he knows the truth, why doesn't he just go to it? Why doesn't he cut short the complaining before the Lord? In part, it's because suffering is real. And he wants to affirm the reality of suffering. If you've been in a position of suffering, you know you don't just cut it off. It doesn't work that way. Deep suffering does not work that way. And God doesn't treat our suffering that way. He doesn't say just pick yourself up, dust yourself off. There's some truth here to be had. No, God actually understands our suffering. And he's willing to share it with us. It's also important to notice before we move on to the truth why the author is suffering the way he is. Did you take a look at verses 1 through 11? Did you see any statement of why this is happening to him? Does he say, I've confessed my sin to you? Does he say, You're punishing my iniquity? He doesn't say anything like that in verses 1 through 11. There's no reason given, and it doesn't explain why. And this is the case elsewhere in Scripture as well. We want to be clear. If you are going through a time of suffering and difficulty, Scripture says it's not always as a punishment for your sin. Consider Job. The entire book of Job is written about a man who God said was blameless and then Satan attacked. Why? Was he attacked because of his sin? No. Scripture's pretty clear about that. It was for God's glory. Consider David. David was the anointed king of Israel and suffered for years. Was it because he had done something wrong? Is that why he was in exile, living in caves? No. Scripture's clear. Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, she suffered. No mention of any sin of hers that caused it. The Apostle Paul goes on long stretches where he speaks about his suffering. And of course, Scripture points us to the affliction of Christ, who is called the suffering servant. Your suffering and your distress in any particular situation doesn't necessarily mean that you're being punished in that situation for your sin. I want to be clear for a second. Christians affirm that every person is sinful. We are all sinful. But if you're going through a hard time right now, don't assume that it's punishment for something you've done wrong. God has a lot of purposes for suffering. And it's not necessarily the case that he's doing it because he's displeased with you. Romans 12.15 tells us one of the purposes, one of the exhortations we're to have when we look at suffering. When we suffer, Romans 12.15 calls us to weep with those who weep. 
And that this is part of the way of building up the body as one in unity. So I want to ask you for a second, in your daily living, do you intentionally seek to be available to those who are struggling? Do you make opportunities for yourself to be able to weep with those who weep? I think we all experience times in our lives when we're just so busy, we're going from first thing to the second thing, we've got no time to spare. But this exhortation in Scripture, to be the kind of person who's willing to come alongside someone else who's weeping and share that suffering with them as part of the body is a really important part of how Christ unites us together in the body. Alternatively, if you're having a tough time, how often do you paper over it with a smile and keep others from sharing in your difficulty with you? We do that. And it makes no sense. It makes you a desert owl of the wilderness unnecessarily. And it keeps other people from having the joy of coming alongside you and sharing in your difficulty and blessing them. So I think this passage wants to encourage us. Pour out your complaint before the Lord and don't just hide it away. Be available to weep with those who are weeping and be willing to share your difficulty with others so that they can be obedient to Romans 12 and weep with you for the edification of the body. But as we enter this second half of the psalm, from verses 12 to 28, we move from how things look, distressing, sad, agonizing, miserable. We turn from how things look to the reality of how things really are. After affirming the reality of pain and suffering, this psalm wants to affirm a greater reality. The greater reality is that God is above all of it. He is the greater reality, and we serve Him. This second half of the psalm from verse 12 to 28 has three different truths that the author uses to fight back against the feelings that make him discontent. And each of these truths are grounded in who God is. These truths help us to take our eyes off of how things seem and place our eyes on rock-solid reality of God. The truths are that God Number one, that God is everlasting and strong. That is the first truth that this author uses as medicine for his ills. God is everlasting and strong. The second truth, God is compassionate. And the third truth, God establishes his people. God is Everlasting and strong, God is compassionate, and God establishes his people. Now in this second half, he kind of jumps around between these three ideas. So I'm going to be jumping around from verse to verse a little bit. just want to give you a warning. I think it's intentional the way that he jumps around from verse to verse. Because as he's painting this picture 
of the truths about God, I think he wants them to interweave with one another. I think he's creating a tapestry of truth, all of which is interrelated for the purpose of showing one big picture that can fight against the way he feels. So we're going to be jumping around a little bit. Bear with me as we explore these three themes. The first theme of the second half of the psalm is that God is everlasting and strong. This first dose of medicine, this first dose of truth to combat the sickness of his circumstances in verse 12, he says, But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. When the author feels distressed and weak and short-lived, the truth that he uses against those feelings is that God is not distressed or weak or short-lived. God is everlasting and strong. In verse 12b, he adds, you're remembered throughout all generations. Now, when we say God is remembered throughout all generations, this is not a statement of how we all remember how God used to be around how great things were when he was enthroned back in the 50s or the 1500s or whenever. Don't you just remember God? That was great. No, this is a remembrance because God is always active in every generation. All generations remember him, not because the Bible is a really popular book, this best-selling book in the world, We all remember it over there on the shelf. No, all generations remember him because he is a king who makes himself known to every generation. He is a powerful and eternal God. In fact, he's such a powerful king that that thought is continued a few verses later on in verse 15. In verse 15, the author says, Nations will fear the name of the Lord, And all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. There is no king as powerful as our king. And then moving down into verse 25, he begins several verses in a row where he speaks about God's powerful, everlasting nature. He says, Of old you laid the foundations of the earth. Of old. That's an understatement. He is speaking to the permanence of God, a permanence that goes beyond when the universe was created and that will continue to go forever. He says in 25b, the heavens are the work of your hands. When was the last time you stopped to consider the universe? In all its power is a tiny picture of the strength of God. The author has stopped thinking about his frailty, his weakness, the few number of days he may have left, and has refocused his mind on God, who is strong and everlasting. That's his first emphasis. God is everlasting and strong. He moves on to his second emphasis in the second half of the psalm, in verse 13. Second emphasis that God is compassionate. I mean, if God were everlasting and strong and didn't care about you, that would not be good news. But he goes on in verse 13 to talk about God's compassion. 
He says, you will arise and have pity on Zion. It is the time to favor her. The appointed time has come. In the same way that God's power and everlasting nature were medicines of truth against the way he was feeling in his weakness and short life, God's compassion is the medicine for the author's feeling of loneliness and unconnectedness with him, with God, with other people. Verse 13 said, you are going to have pity on Zion. Why? Verse 14 tells us why. For your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. In this verse, the Lord says he favors Zion and has pity on it because his servants have pity on it. Those things that God's servants care about, God cares about. And each of us needs to know that when we care about something, God cares about it. doesn't have to pass some importance test. If you care about it, God cares about it. Verse 16 continues this thought of God's compassion. It says, the Lord builds up Zion. He appears. He shows up in His glory. He's not disconnected. He's not away. And verse 17 drives the point home. You remember how we began? When the author said, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Well, now in verse 17 he says, God regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. He is a compassionate God and he listens. It doesn't feel like he's listening sometimes, but he's listening and he cares. God cares about you in your distress. Verses 18 to 22 have a number of thoughts that focus on God's compassion. Verse 18 says, Let this be recorded for a generation to come, so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. Why? Verse 19, that he looked down from his holy height. From heaven, the Lord looked at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners. These are the same groans that we read in verse 5. God hears the groans of the prisoners to set free those who were doomed to die. You may have felt like your time was almost out. God's purpose for you is to hear and to set you free. Verse 21, So that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord, and in Jerusalem His praise. Just so we're clear, God does not set you free just so you can go do whatever you want. He has a purpose for you and for me. And that purpose is eternal praise. And that's a good purpose. When peoples gather together in kingdoms to worship the Lord. 
God is collecting for Himself a great people. He has compassion on them. And He doesn't want to be separate from them. That's our second point, that God is compassionate, not distant. Our third point is that God is the one who establishes His people. The author, in those first 11 verses, was worried that he was going to waft away like smoke. That like Texas grass, he's going to be gone. No one will remember him. But this second half of the psalm wants to remind us that God establishes his people. We want to affirm that he is everlasting, but he also establishes his people before him. Take a look at verse 16. The Lord builds up Zion. And when the Lord builds something, it lasts. Why? Why does He build up Zion? Verse 18. So that it can be recorded for a generation to come. There's no cutting off of life. This isn't the end. We're looking toward the future. There's a generation to come. People who were doomed to die, God wants to establish them so that they can praise Him. And you know how long they're going to praise Him? Forever. Verses 25 to 28 talks about this idea of God establishing His people again. Of old you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They, the heavens and the earth, will perish. The entire earth, all creation is going to perish. But you're going to remain, he says in verse 26. They're going to wear out like a garment. You're going to change them like a robe. Put them aside and they'll pass away. Verse 27, but you are the same, and your years have no end. And then he moves into verse 28, on purpose. What does he say? Your years have no end. In verse 28, the children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. So when we feel weak, God wants to remind us through this psalm that He is strong. When we feel like we're about to fail, we're about to die, God wants to remind us He is everlasting. When we feel like He's not listening at all, this psalm takes us off of ourselves and reminds us He is compassionate. And He has plans to establish His people. In his wisdom, God decides to establish his people not only despite suffering, but actually through suffering. Suffering is one of the ways that God establishes his people. Romans 5.3 says, we rejoice in our sufferings. It's very hard to do when you're in the middle of suffering. That's why it's a good idea to memorize that verse now. Because in the middle of suffering, you can't just read Romans 5.3 and embrace it. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. 
endurance, right? This passage is talking about it. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. That's what this author wants. And hope does not put us to shame. Pastor Taylor read for us 2 Corinthians 1, which tells us that you go through suffering, God puts you through suffering so that when He comforts you, you can take the comfort that He has comforted you with and be a comfort to other people. God has purposes for your suffering. Your God is strong and compassionate and eternal. And those are the medicine of truth to fight the fears and feelings of despair and distress. But of course, the most poignant message about suffering that God wants to tell us is that when he establishes his people and he does it forever... He does it through the suffering of one man. God, in his omniscience, saw fit to make the suffering of Jesus Christ the salvation of the world. Someone who didn't deserve it, wasn't being punished, He was perfectly strong. He was compassionate. He was eternal. And yet, he was also fully man. And he suffered in a way that no human in history has ever suffered. Because we were broken and sinful, in order to restore us to himself, God sent Christ to suffer in a way that puts Psalm 102 to shame. And he felt separated. And he knew his days were coming to an end. But he had a hope that went beyond his death. And this psalm wants to encourage all of us to have a hope that goes beyond our death as well. If you turn to Christ, turn from your sin, and stop looking at yourself, recognizing the reality of suffering, but the the equal recognition that staring at your own suffering is not good enough. You need to turn your eyes to Christ. And in that turning, we find the only permanent hope for the redemption of suffering. If you're feeling weighed down and distressed and miserable and alone and rejected, the psalm wants to affirm that your suffering is real. God cares. But it also wants to point you to a greater truth. That when you're feeling weak, God is your strength. When you're feeling alone, God is with you and He's compassionate. When you're feeling short-lived, God has a life available to you that outlasts the earth. 
And he establishes his people before him forever. And he does so through one who suffered on our behalf. So that our remedy from suffering might be eternal. There will come a day when God himself is going to come to you and wipe every tear from your eye. He's going to take away all suffering forever. And it's going to be a distant memory. And he does it through Christ. So turn to Christ. If you want to know how to do that, any member in this church would love to sit down and talk to you. Any of the pastors who've seen up here this morning would love to talk to you about how to do that. God wants you to turn to him, to turn your eyes to him. Not to make it on your own, but to be built up into Christ and into the body of Christ so that we might dwell with God forever. So let's pray and thank the Lord for these wonderful truths and ask him to plant them deep in our hearts. Would you pray with me?